millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to this episode of Headstrong. My name is Louis Strong and I host this show. Headstrong is a podcast where I sit down with a variety of individuals in the public eye to talk to them about their lives, their careers, but notably their vulnerabilities to understand what it means to be headstrong. This series is entirely devoted to the sport of cricket and I am delighted to say that we are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation, a magnificent charity that is firmly rooted in cricket but is making significant headways elsewhere. This series is also sponsored by Ascot Group and McGill and Partners. Thank you for your continued support. So far on this series, we've had some wonderful cricketers come on and talk about their vulnerabilities, their mentality when it comes to cricket, growing up and indeed where cricket fitted in. Cricketers such as Joss Butler, Dom Bess, Jason Holder and many more. If you've missed any of these, feel free to scroll through and have a look and listen. On today's episode though, I have a former cricketer in the likes of Adam Holyoke. Adam was in Australia when we chatted and we talked about his upbringing and his life from living all over the world when he was growing up and realising that cricket was the one thing that followed him everywhere. We had a chat about how he navigated his career, his captaincy and many other things. So I really hope you enjoy this episode of Headstrong. Adam, thank you very, very much for joining me on Headstrong. How's it all going? Yeah, going good, mate. Going good, all good. So you're over on the other side of the world at the moment. What's going on down there compared to here? Um, I've sort of obviously I've been keeping an eye on what's going on over there, and so you guys are in a bit of uh, bit of 
bit of strife over there, but I'm in Queensland and we haven't really had any cases here for, I mean, I think the worst it ever got to, we might have had 100 cases. So um, we've sort of been going about business as, pos- as usual, um, just with having to check in places and a bit of social distancing and more washing of our hands, but otherwise life is normal. Um, and it's just meant no international travel, which hasn't affected a lot of people, but probably affected me a little bit because I used to come over to England a few times a year. So, But I can't really complain compared to what's been going on over there, I don't think. Adam, it seems only only right to to navigate this conversation from the very very start if you're happy to do so. So I wanted to kind yeah. of talk about your your childhood, your upbringing, and and what it was like living in Australia. So you were born in Melbourne. What do you remember of those formative years uh, in Australia? What is the kind of defining? How would you define Melbourne in the seventies? Oh, so I haven't got a great memory for for that. Um, it's funny, like a lot of people talk about, um, you know, they remember, you know, they, when they were young, but I think I did so much traveling and we moved around so much that those memories weren't consistent. So I think probably people remember their childhood before 10 based on the consistency of it. But like, we traveled a lot. My dad traveled with work and um, we spent a lot of time. And my also parents loved traveling, so we'd go around in caravan. Did a lot of caravanning through Europe and stuff like that. So um, I don't really have a particular memory of Melbourne as such. I remember a couple of incidences, but it's more. I remember just being a really transient life, you know, lifestyle, and just doing a lot of traveling around rather than Melbourne itself. Yeah, completely. What where did sport fit in then as a family and growing up? Yeah, but I don't reckon I don't reckon we had a lot of sport growing up, um, other than just playing in the backyard with my father and just playing me and my brother playing games against each other. Um, we didn't really have a typical organized sport um lifestyle. We um I think most of our cricket came through in the garage, just taking up a ball and messing around and um and then it wasn't really till we got to the age of 12 or something. That's when I moved to England that I started playing organised competitive sport, really. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how it came about. So my sport pre-12 was very much just playing cricket on our knees in the lounge room with a table tennis ball or in the garage with a taped-up ball or messing around, kicking rugby balls or Australian rules balls. That was pretty much our sport. It wasn't structured at all. I was going to say, it wasn't always cricket then. A bit of Aussie rules is always good. Just everything. I think. I mean, people, I think when people make it in one sport, people presume that mm. that's all they did. But we were just kids who just had a go at everything. Um, literally AFL, boxing, cricket. Rugby, hockey, athletics, and then a few games we made up ourselves. I reckon so. Um, yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't just cricket, that's for sure. Yeah, sure. I mean, as you said earlier, you spent a lot of time travelling around. You went to the UK, Hong Kong, I believe, um, and then Australia again as well. What was mm-hmm. that experience like travelling around? You know, growing up, and I suppose. 
what I want to know is as well, what it was like um, not always being in a, in a one place all the time, you know, at, growing up at, in those yeah. years. Because, you know, you want those childhood friends. And sometimes if you're there for only two or three years and then you've got to go again. Do you know what I mean? What yeah, it, it was like? really, well, it was really, that's a really interesting question. And, and actually one I've been asking myself quite a bit. I'm a parent myself now, so... You know, obviously, you know, a lot of psychology and good parenting things is, talks about giving your kids structure and giving them consistency um, with growing up. Like, you know, uh, I'm separated from my wife and, you know, talk about having kids having their own bedroom and, you know, their own routine and kids like structure. But we never had any of that growing up. And I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not I'm not. You know, and I'm not advocating that I was at, we were brought up correctly and everyone else was brought up wrong. I'm just, that's just the way it was. Um, I'm sure there's pros and cons to that. Um, I would think one positive, I mean, I'm sure there's negatives that a lot of people are going to yell out to me, but my mind can't think of them off the top of my head. But I think one positive is I don't, whenever I go somewhere now, whether it be a new team, a new job, a new group of friends, I find it very easy to, I'm not flustered by that situation at all. I know my children get anxious when they join a new sports team or I can't remember if I did. I, I, I don't really remember. I'm not a massively anxious guy anyway, but um, I've kind of tried to give my kids that little bit more structure than we have, but also whilst telling them, that, you know, hey, you've got to go and, a lot, of the, a lot of the kids that they, they, they go to school with, they want to, oh, come and join the team. We can be in the same team together. And it's like they need that comfort of their mate being there. Whereas my elder son is more like that, but my younger son's like, I don't care. I'm just going to go and play and I'll make friends when I get there, which is kind of more of the attitude, I think, me. And I'm not sure if that was the way we were or if we just had to be that way. Um, that was more the way me and my brother were. We just turned up to a team and we just made friends when we got there. <laughs> where, where did you feel most at home then? Well, I never felt at home anywhere, I reckon, until I played for Surrey. Um, Surrey is probably the only place I've ever felt at home with anything, um, whether that be... I mean, home was always where my mum and dad's family house was. That's always home. And we always felt very comfortable with that, always like, very loving family a very tight family but that family wasn't like oh some people say the family home and that might that'll be one house that springs to mind with us it was just it wasn't really a structure it was as in a physical structure it was just where mum and dad chose to live at that particular time so um yeah it's interesting um interesting like i think probably a, a strange upbringing but it kind of worked for us yeah well of course every everyone is uniquely different how does it compare then to the way that you bring your children up then are you firm in the way that you want to have a base now for them to help deliver their kind of support networks for for school and to stay in the same school as well rather than moving around like you did we've tried to i mean one of the things which is kind of handcuffed us in a way is that I am divorced from my ex-wife and um, I can't go off anymore. She's here, I'm here. We, neither of us can go off because the kids have to have 
by law have to be, have that consistency. So that's not really an option. Um, but even I only, I've only been divorced five years or something like that. But even before that, I felt like we were trying to give the kids more consistency. And I think that was more based on the fact that my wife at the time was from that. She went, she went to one primary school, one secondary school, did the pretty normal, had the pretty normal childhood. And, mm. um, and then obviously all the literature is about trying to give them a consistent. So whilst I was happy with my upbringing and I can see the positives for it, I also understand that psychologically there are negatives even though I feel like we've sort of through the love of our family and other strong points of our family we sort of managed to sort of negate the negative sides a bit completely I mean you briefly mentioned there that uh, you know structure sport didn't really develop in your in your life until around the age of 12 and I suppose that continued thereafter as well when did cricket though become the possibility and an option as a profession for you? I think literally the day I got offered the contract. Um, I was about 16 at the time, but before that, um, I mean, I'd always considered, thought I want to play sport. I want to play for my country. Um, I don't know what country that was. <laughs> it was Australia. Uh, I didn't know what sport. I just knew that I was going to do that. Um, it was strange. It's a strange um, confidence which I had from a very young age. Might have been overconfidence, and maybe I just got lucky to get where I did. But I always believed from an early age. I remember teachers speaking to me at the age of twelve, saying, "You can't play sport all your life." And I was like, "Well, that's just what I'm going to do." Uh, I'm sure there's a lot of kids who do that who have false confidence, but and maybe I did as well. I was just lucky to get that. I don't know, but for, in my mind, there was never any doubt that's what I was going to do. I'm curious to ask you about um, that, that where you self-identify then in terms of nationality. Uh, you know, saying that you wanted to play international sport regardless. Uh, and of course you did ha- ha- play for England. Um, so did you feel torn? You know, did you ever think about where you did lie personally uh, and where you could, you know, did this come from all your traveling around and where you were rooted? Um, or were you actually, was that not really that big a deal to you? You just knew that it wanted to be international it's a really good question um i it's quite interesting because obviously i'm i've got an australian accent i have an australian pass when i was growing up so when i got picked for england i was always that australian kid who's playing for england um and i used to try and defend it i was like oh yeah but i went to school here and i learned to play cricket here i used to try and defend it but one day i think i I looked at it and i was defensive you know i was like on the defense I i was you know, like fending off the punches, you know what I mean? And then one day I thought, well, why am I, why am I defending this? This is like, this is just the cards I've been dealt. Um, if I said, okay, you know what? I learned to play cricket in England. I'm going back to Australia and I'm going to try and play for the Australian cricket team. I would have been a traitor that way. So either way, I didn't, you know, my, when you, you think about it from the age of 12, your secondary school that's kind of wherever you are then kind of I feel like shapes who, where you feel like you belong and mm. I felt I did all my secondary schooling at St George's College in Weybridge um so I had my feel if I'd turned up back to Australia claiming to be Australian I felt like I would have been a traitor that way as well so it was just 
I feel like I'd never had the opportunity to feel that, you know, I watch people when the, you know, the Six Nations is on or when England are playing in the World Cup and I see the pride that people have got. They're born from that country. Both their parents are English. They're English. They've grown up in England. There's never any doubt that they'll, I think that's a beautiful thing. I never had that option. I, I was deprived that option um, because just because my, my father travelled for his work. Um, so I think people used to like throw it at me like some sort of accusation, like I was some sort of traitor that was, <laughs> I, was like, I was 12 and I used, to, I used to defend it. I used to like I was done something wrong, like I'd stolen a loaf of bread. From <laughs> I was like, I've, and then I'm like one day I thought, hang on, why am I defending? Like just because my father travelled for his work when he was young, why am I defending? I just want to be the best in my sport. Maybe they should have another another country, like which is just for all those what, kids the, who, the mashup. Yeah, the mess up, like the the, the, the junkyard dogs, the, like, the sort of the mongrels, the half breeds who just didn't don't affiliate with one country. You can like me, Kevin Peterson, you know, <laughs> like Alan Mullally, Jason Gallion, um, Strassy, well, We can all a few of them. Yeah, a few of the England team might be in there. <laughs> Yeah, like Andrew Simons, he can come and have a game. Like, um, you know, we'll we'll get our own side together. All the people, you know, who who aren't from that particular, who played for another Kepler vessels, he can get a game. There you go. It's like it's 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 life. We see it yeah. wherever we go. Why, you know, we CEO the CEO of Qantas in Australia is Irish. It's you know, it's um, <laughs> it's I don't know, but with sport, it was some sort of. You know, that like, like accusing me. I was twelve. I wasn't able to go out on my own and say, "No, Dad. You know what? You go off and you go to do your work. I'm going to stay in Australia and I'm going to play for Australia." I was like, "I didn't have that choice. Yeah. I, I don't know why I even defended it. I think you just like but pride. Now I think just, probably. Well, well, I'm proud that I had I travelled as a kid as well. Now it's Absolutely. like I don't. People say it. I'm like, you know what? I don't care. Like, say what you want. Like, I would love to have grown up in one country, stayed in one place and gone out there and sung that national anthem with my, but I was, I was deprived of that opportunity and I'm not complaining. I don't want people to feel sorry for me, but that's a beautiful thing which people who are fortunate to do that, get that opportunity. And like, I never felt that, that really deep love of playing for England like I did for Surrey. I'd grown up for Surrey. I played all my career for Surrey. And when I played for Surrey, I went out there on the pitch. Uh, but I didn't try any harder when I played for Surrey than when I played for any other team. I always tried my hardest every time I played. But I felt that pride and still feel that pride of Surrey because I played all my cricket in Surrey and that was it. Um, and no one ever questioned me, like, you're not a Surrey kid. Uh, no one ever said, you're not from Surrey, you're from Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like with England, it was like, there was always that he's that Aussie kid who came to play for us because he wasn't good enough to go for Australia. And I was like, well, I was came over when I was twelve, mate. I was a bit young to go out on my own. <laughs> 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 I mean, Sorry, Dad, up you go. I'm, I'm staying here <laughs> for, the, for the good of the country, you know. Like, <laughs> oh um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the facts that I uh, I read earlier that I really, really enjoyed to read was. You and your brother were the first brother duo in over a hundred years to hit the field together in an England shirt. So I think that's pretty cool. Can you remember that day? Yeah, um, 
No, I don't think we were the first ones to hit the field. I think we were the first ones to debut together, maybe. Oh, was it? Um, I think because there's the Bensers, they I'm sure they played together in the in the fifties. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, yeah, sure. debuted. I reckon, For sure, yeah. debut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I re- and I don't know how many others have debuted in the world. So re- there might be this. There's that one brothers in the eight, yeah. in the, you know, eight, 18 something who. I mean, they. I can't remember what they were. They the Richardsons or something, or I'm not sure. Whatever they're called, that those 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 um, and I don't think maybe the Flowers they might have debuted together. I don't know, um, but there's I don't think there's many. I mean, your point being that it's a pretty rare thing, <laughs> um, and and yeah, mate, it's amazing. I don't think it really at the time it didn't strike home how important it was, mm. and probably you know the only time the first time I realised how big a deal it was was when I've started like. Um, reading reports when Tom and Sam Curran, you know, started getting into the international scene, and people were saying they're the first brothers since the Hollyoaks, and then and then mentioning that other brothers and the Bedsers, and then I was like, wow, this is actually like a quite a a big deal. At the time, it didn't feel like a big deal because me and my brother had that success against Australia in the one days. I'd sort of been in the around the England team for a while, so. Um, it didn't, and, and just like everything of that, everything just sort of you, when you're young, you're just doing, it and you don't actually look back at the gravity of the situation until mm. afterwards. I think so. I obviously it's a big deal making your test debut, but I just didn't realise the gravity of the situation being two brothers making their debut together. I think that was probably the thing which made it extra special. Completely. I'd like, I'd like to talk to you about, <clears throat> on a couple of bits on your cricketing career, particularly being captain and that of both Surrey and then the ODI team uh, when, you were, when you were in an England shirt. How does, how does it differ from being a normal player taking on the captaincy and then the, the, the weight of the role that comes with the captaincy? Wow, that's... Uh, that's I, know what you, I know what you're asking. Um, but I think... My my answer is is there's two parts to it. Yeah, sure. I I don't really know because I never really approached it as that. I always played as a player, and then the captaincy came after that. Um, but I think I was unique in that way. Um, when I got given the captaincy of Surrey, I'd never captained any team of any district. I played a hell of a lot of sport. I mean, bearing in mind, I played rugby, hockey, cricket, athletics, rugby sevens, Australian rules football, all the sport I'd done from a young age. I'd never, ever captained the team. Wow. Um, because I was just always, I was a rebellious, angry, overly competitive, nasty child. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was the angry, I wasn't captaincy material. I wasn't responsible. Uh, that aspect of my development as a as a as a as a man was slow. Um, I was highly competitive, and um, I was I was pretty much an animal on the field. It was like I was just I cricket for me was or sport for me was an outlet. I just went out there and played my hardest, sometimes at the expense of. The rules and my morals, um, I just played the game literally at an intensity which was 
something I'm not proud of now, but um, and it didn't necessarily lend itself to being a captain. So um, when I became captain, I had a little bit of, uh, well, first it was a shock, so I hadn't had real time to think about how am I going to do this. So I got in there, but I think the thing which really helped me the most was the team that I became captain of. And we had Alex Stewart, 100 test matches, Graham Thorpe, 100 test matches, um, a whole bunch of other guys, seven or eight guys who played international cricket, and I hadn't played at that stage. So imagine if I'd came in and started telling everyone how to do everything, and I was so young, I was 20, 21, 22. Mm. This would have been laughable. So I kind of was forced into a position of being a humble captain from the beginning. Um, I just had to come out and say, hey, look, guys, I'm just starting out unless you're going to need to help me. And I sort of led the team as a democracy um, rather than, right, I'm captain, this is what you're doing, this is what you're doing. It just wouldn't have worked. So I, I kind of fell into the role that way. People from the outside always think I was this Stalin-esque type leader who just, you know, rallied the troops and was just shouting like, over the top we go, like kind of like that. I wasn't that leader. I was kind of more quietly spoken. I mean, there was times when I'd, I'd, I'd fire up, but mainly at the opposite. I was sort of, I guess, I led that way by my presence and like my aggression towards the opposition rather than trying to inspire my own team. I think I inspired them through my actions and the way I played, um, and then by, I think, just treating them like humans and not pretend, not act, I'm not, I'm not talking down to you because I'm the captain and you are not, I was, just, I was just one of the guys. So I think I gained respect from my humility rather than people think it's from my physicality. Um, but um, I think underneath all that, there was always the fact that, you know, I am a physical person. I've always, like, fought since the age of 12. Um, I was always, people were always a little bit wary of me because I had a little bit of, I was a bit edgy. I could I could switch at any stage, so people were always a little bit. But I'd like to think underneath that I was I was respectful and um, and let, let people be themselves. So I think I'll, I'll be lying if I said that. I think that edginess and people not knowing if I was going to switch at any stage played to my advantage. But I don't think I ever really went that way. I never went to the point where I physically threatened anyone on our side or anything like that. But I think people were always curious or careful that it might go that way. This series is brought to you by two magnificent sponsors, Ascot Group and McGill and Partners. Ascot Group is a global speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service. Founded in 2001, the company provides a broad range of property and casualty solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda and the United States. Ascot is a long-standing supporter of charities with a link to sport, including ongoing sponsorship of the Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby Club, with a recent increase in mental health awareness, the company is particularly proud to support Headstrong Season 5 and Innings With, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sports. 
McGill and Partners is a boutique insurance broker helping corporate clients find specialist solutions for their most challenging and complex risks. Growing rapidly since its launch in 2019, the company operates in the UK, Europe and the United States and prides itself on working with some of the biggest companies in the world. And you can find out more on their website, mcgillpartners.com. McGill and Partners understands high performance and the mental health challenges that can be associated with it, regardless of the industry people are working in. The company is fully committed to their employees' well-being and are delighted to be sponsoring the Headstrong podcast series. It is also delighted to support the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Thank you to these two wonderful sponsors. With being such a, given such like the accolade of, a, of England captain, that's quite a, you know, people would pretty much kill for that, I, I reckon. Is yeah. there an emotional ca- connection when it comes to being given the captaincy and subsequently losing it? Did you feel that it was something that was important to you to keep a captaincy? Was it actually just, oh, it's a bonus if I am, it's a bonus if I'm not. It's neither here nor there. It's interesting. Again, like you're asking some like great questions because um, I haven't been asked them before, but they're they're really they're really um, probing. But um, <laughs> it, it's good. No, it's good. It's, um, I'd never aspired to be captain of any side, and I always said a number of times I tried to resign from the Surrey captaincy because I felt that it was affecting my game, or I didn't feel I was doing a good enough job, and the club would turn talk me back into it. Um, with the England captaincy, I think I've never ever been sacked or dropped or anything like that, other than when I got dropped as captain of England. I, I could feel it coming. And then I think that was the only time in my career that I started trying to hang on to it. So I started like, oh, I'm going to lose the captaincy here. I'm going to try and, and once you get into that position, I think you've lost. So in hindsight, you, you can't value the captaincy. You've got to, it's, it's a gift. You can't go out there trying to maintain your, the title of captain. You've got to just go out as a player. Number one thing, I, I, I now coach people on captaincy. Um, I said the number one rule of captaincy, people think it's like speak with authority or lead by example or whatever. So the number one rule of captaincy above everything is you are still a player and you have to make sure that your own game is up to up to scratch. Any decision that you will make as a captain will never outweigh the input of your runs and your wickets. So you're genuinely one of the better players, probably the best player, if not the best player, one of the best players. If you take away your runs and wickets and your the physical things that you give to the side, straight away the side's playing with 10 men and it's very unlikely that any tactical decision will make up for that. So the number one most important thing in captaincy is your own performance has to come first. Mm. So I was always pretty make sure that I was looking after my own game. Um, I felt that that was the best thing that I could do for the side um, was perform as a player. That was the best thing that better than like, okay, should we have three slips or two slips and a short leg? Like probably not, but if I score a hundred, that's going to make a big difference to the team. So, um, it sounds selfish, but it's you just ultimately you're thinking of the team. So making sure my own game is in hand is, is crucial. 
Uh, if it's, it's fair to say that you, you've certainly had your fingers in many pies in your life and you've experienced a number of things, not just your cricket career, and you certainly don't define yourself by cricket. Um, if it was possible, though, um, I wanted to talk about the subject of, of grief and, and it being a taboo subject in, in the kind of 21st century in the modern world that we live in. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. So, well, if I said no, if I said no, I'd just be just feeding the taboo, wouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, perhaps, perhaps, of course. I mean, yeah. I mean, you very, very tragically lost your brother in a, in a car accident in 2002. And he was a cricketer as well. And as you said earlier, you played a lot of cricket together and indeed at Surrey and for England. I can only, I can only imagine that pain and tragedy that you and your family have been through. But I wanted to ask you how you personally found your own coping mechanisms and dealt with such a difficult time in your life and how on earth you actually reflect on that now well it's again like it's 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 a so it's a topic which i feel like at various times i could give you a straight answer but the answer i'll give you now is it constantly changes and it's constantly evolving how i dealt with it the day after my brother died compared to how I deal with it now is completely different. And if I had tried, how I feel like I'm handling it now is brilliant. But if I tried to behave this way the day after the um, he died, it wouldn't work. There's stages you've got to go through. Um, I mean, you've got to allow yourself to grieve. Uh, and I think I did that by not coming back, returning for the season for, for like two and a half months or something like that. So I took that time out. Um, and, but all the way up, you know, all the different phases, you know, like I went through a long stage where all I could focus on was the accident and him dying and the negative side of his death for a long time, maybe five, maybe 10 years. Um, and then one day I was like, why am I focusing on a five minute period of his life when for 24 years, um, we had the most amazing memories. We had times that other brothers don't get to experience. Like we maybe that one other brother in what nine eighteen something. <laughs> but we had, you know, we did things that other brothers don't get to do. Well, why am I focusing on the moment when he died? He car he crashed, you know, died in a car crash. It's like, why am I focusing on that? That doesn't make sense. It's like a five minute period in a twenty four year relationship. So, um, so that was sort of the first phase. Um, I mean, there was many phases, but that was just a phase. And then just recently, um, and then just recently, I've, I've I've gone again. But I mean, I, I I spoke about it the other day on a Facebook post, and I wrote that kind of we owe it to the people who die to carry on and be the best version of ourselves that we are, because we're still in the game, we're still alive, and if we, um allow it to defeat us and we you know we mope around and don't be the best version of ourselves we're kind of not doing justice to that person who's died i mean the last thing i think anyone would want would to die and then the people that who they love to then become a shadow of themselves they want you to strive and go on and be and do great things so we're still in the game i said i liken it to a game of cricket imagine if i be to bat six imagine if you know we lost four wickets for 10 runs and I just started like going into grief and like give up because 
we're not in a, a good place. I'm still in the game. I'm still alive. We stay till the job's done. So, and it's good. It comes across as quite harsh. And I think if I tried to say this to someone who just lost someone, they'd go, oh, that's, that's a bit strong. But bear in mind, it's almost 20 years since I've lost my brother. So I like, I feel like I owe it to him to go out and now and not grieve and not mope and be about and just carry on and be the best version of myself that I can be. I've been through that stage. I've been through the, the grief stage and there comes a point where you just got to, you just, it's the cycle of life. We, we're all going to die. We all get a number. Like I was saying when I wrote the other day that I've, of the six guys from our Surrey team that I played with who died, um, you know, Graham Kersey, he was 25. My brother was 24. Joe Benjamin, the other died, he was, he was 60. Um, Danny Callagher was 28. Um, Tom Maynard was 25. Um, so we've lost a lot of guys and we've all got a number. My numbers could be any time, but all we can do in that time is be the best that we can and create the memories that we can and be that best version of ourselves. The cycle, the cycle of life is beautiful. It's, um, it's an amazing thing. And the fact that we, you know, we don't know how long we're going to live. That's the sort of spice of life. We don't know when we're going to die. So we've got to make the most of every moment. If everyone lived for 100 and we knew we were going to die and that, then life wouldn't have that same spice about it, the same. So I think the kind of uncertainty of it is, is beautiful in itself. So um, I guess I've kind of, that's, that's the this phase I'm in at the moment. I'm, I'd be foolish to say that this is the final phase because every time I've said that in the past, I evolve again. So um, that's where I'm at at the moment with it. Absolutely. I, I think that's a really great outlook on life. But as you say, you've had years of experience now and you as you say there have been it's been a unique journey in terms of how you tackle with something like that and one 100%. of the one of the stages that i did want to particularly perhaps touch on is um i have seen and read that you kind of tried to numb the pain using alcohol is that fair to say yeah what was that yeah. was that just a matter of self-prescription then and what you felt at the time was the best way to cope and deal with something that was so you know monumental that you couldn't actually comprehend Did you say self-prescription yeah you know self-prescribed like, how do you, how do you prescribe it from a doctor I was <laughs> <buying> it <at> <laughs> <the bar. laughs> um mate it was it wasn't to numb the pain i'm not I, I never drank to numb the pain um i understand what that's like because I kind of went through a really stressful period when I, I lost a lot of money um, later on in life and I, I kind of, I'd have such a hard week come the Friday, I was like, I just want to write myself off. And that was a totally different, I was numbing the pain then. With my brother, I wasn't doing that. I think what it was then, the phase I was going through then was I never thought, I thought he was invincible. I thought I was invincible. And I was like, then all of a sudden, this invincibility and this way I was leaving my life was just, that's wrong. I could be taken at any minute here. I could go, I was having dinner with my brother. We left and he was dead two minutes later. So it just, it happened. Um, so I think for me, I just was like, I'm going to live every moment as if, 
is the I just went out and I was just doing things which were just outrageous, which just wasn't, you know, I was um, drinking, I was womanizing, I was, um, I was just, I was, I was living my life as if it was the last day. If you ask someone like, you got told you've got a day to live, what would you do? There's always that thing. What would you do if you're on a plane and and someone said the plane's going to crash? A lot of people would be like, oh, I'd grab the hottest girl and I'd go and you know, and we'd like the plane would crash and we'd be making love. You know what I mean? I was like, I was living like a rock star. I was just, um, it's dangerous as well, you know, um, because I was an influential person and um, a lot of people were wanting to party with me and I was dragging a lot of people with me and I, I wasn't, I didn't handle it well. So um, that's, a, that's a, definitely a time in my life. I'm not proud of it, but I understand it. I understand. I forgive myself for it because um, we all handle grief in different ways and um, I didn't mope about and cry into my pillow or any of that. I was like the other way. I was like, okay, I'm going out tonight and we are going to have one hell of a time because I could be dead tomorrow. That was the way it was. And I'd never lived like that before. I was actually my whole life I was in bed early and um, I was trained hard and disciplined and all of a sudden I was I just lived my life the last couple of years of my career like that. And um, it took me, I had, I felt I needed to retire. That's why I retired at the age of 31 at my, at my, in my peak, at my prime. So um, I just needed to be away from it. Well, you devoted a lot of energy as well to all your amazing charity work. And then kind of in the last 20 years or so, you, you've done some incredibly commendable things. Uh, do you know this, the, a sum to date of, of, of money that you've raised? Because I, I, I was trying to count it up, but I can't even find everything anywhere. It's amazing. Uh, I'd, have no, I'd have no idea. Um, I know we, um, we built a wing on a children's hospice down in England, um, mm-hmm. down in Guildford. Um, I've been involved with it. I used to run a couple of charity days out here for a charity called Paradise Kids. Um, I would have no idea, but I, it would be in the millions, I would have thought. Um, so... Um, it's incredible. But it's the, I don't know. I, I, again, I I feel like at that time when I was doing it, it was for selfish reasons. I'm mean, number one reason I wanted my brother to be remembered. So um, that's why I hence named the Ben Holyoke Fund. Um, mm. And then I, I wanted his name to live on. And then the things I did, I wanted them to put plaques on the hospice that we built with the money. Um, so I felt like I wanted something tangible to, for him. Um, and yeah, that was, and, and I, I, I guess that was my, my reason. Um, interestingly, interestingly with that, um, I think I'm not sure you, know, you haven't asked this question, but I'm going to tell you it anyway, cause I think you'd be interested. Um, Pre-2002, I used to go down to Guildford every year for the Guildford Surrey. We used to play a couple of games down in Guildford. And every year this elderly gentleman used to come up to me and he'd try and talk, he'd try and talk me into supporting this charity. And I was like, mate, I'm kind of busy, you know, I'm an important person, mate, I'm captain of England. Like, 
you know. And I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this. I'm not joking. I'm, I'm saying this from a position of embarrassment, really, because I was pretty arrogant and um, pretty happy with myself. Um, and I was like, mate, I haven't really got time. Take a picture. I'll, like, I'll give you a quote. Like, I'll give you a signed shirt. What do you want? Just kind of like leave me alone. I'm, I'm, I'm busy and important. That was the. I didn't say those words, but that was the. That was the mentality and what you were eating. That, that was the vibe I was giving this guy. And then every year, the same gentleman who would come down, and he was always so so patient and so kind and so quietly spoken and so persistent and stubborn. <laughs> but he would come down every year and he would have the same conversation with me and I'd, I'd, make, I'd, I'd try and fob him off. Anyway, my brother died and then I went there and he was down there and he, and he came and he spoke to me and I could see in his eyes that he was genuinely, he felt the pain of my brother dying and I could feel he felt, um, he felt, genuine empathy for and sympathy for what I was going through. And he 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 said, um, so I said, hey, come sit down, let's talk, what can I do? He goes, we're we trying to raise money to build a hospice and, and we're having an event. I'd like you to come down and speak at it. So uh, and just see what's going on. So I was like, hey, I'll come down. So I went down there and um and when I went down there at this time, this has peaked me feeling sorry for myself about my brother's death. I went down there and they started playing videos of um, of kids who had developed terminal illness and the parents coming on and talking about it. And my daughter had just been born a couple of months after my brother's accident, so I was a, a new father. And these parents were coming on there. And then I was looking around the room and all these parents, they'd um, lost children. And I was, at that time, I was obviously feeling my own pain. And I remember looking around and going, like, who am I to feel like this? Like, these people have all lost their children. Like, why am I feeling like I'm special? I'm not special at all. I'm just, and I, I, I then, I said, I've got to, I've got to help out. I've got to get involved and I've got to help these people. I'm in a position of, of to be able to do something and and I gotta do that. So I um I got up on the mic and um I said to them that I was gonna do a marathon a day for a month. I hadn't thought any of this through by the way. So I was gonna do a marathon a day for a month. I was gonna I was gonna swim across the British Channel. And then every time I'd say it, the crowd was going was clapping me. So I was getting caught up in the emotion. So then I'm gonna cycle across all of Europe and the crowd's going wild. And then when we get to Gibraltar, I'm going to row across to Africa. And then I was like, shit, I better stop there. I don't know. We're going to end up in Australia here if I keep going. So, um, and then I got off and I said, I got off the stage and I was like, is that even possible? Like, I don't know. Can we, can we do that? And they're like, yeah, I don't reckon you'll make the swim. Um, but you know, the rest of it, I think you can do it. So I didn't run. I walked a marathon every day. Um, and then we ro- we sailed across the channel, uh, and then we rode we rode bikes down from Dieppe all the way down to Gibraltar, and then we rode across Africa. Um, but that um, yeah, that's how that came about. So from one, you know, for years, this gentleman called John Hastings, who was a patron of the Chase Charity, coming down and harassing me and me trying to, and in that moment. 
it, it all changed. And then all of a sudden, I, then I pledged five years of uh, fundraising for for Chase and for the children with terminal illness. Well, good for John for being so persistent. Yeah. <laughs> well, what was, that was called the journey, was it? It's called Adam's journey. Yeah, it shouldn't have been called. It should have just been called the journey because a whole bunch of other people came with me. So what an, um, what an experience! It was incredible. Still, probably the best thing I've ever done. No, I can only imagine. Now, mm. as I said earlier, though we <clears throat> we have got a lot. Uh, you you had a lot a lot of kind of things in many pies in that regard. And I wanted to specifically talk to you now about life after cricket, if that was okay, mm. uh, because you've taken up coaching and a career in coaching very much so. Now, yeah. I was wondering how, how that works in the coaching world because, of course, with, with playing cricket, you hit a good score and you connect a few good scores and you're going to start climbing. Whereas with, yeah. um, with coaching, is it a matter of building your coaching credentials up and, and locking in a few club sides and then just kind of moving around and just keep, keep building that ladder? Is that how it works in the coaching world? I think I'm still trying to work it out. Um, <laughs> It's um, I, so basically, I finished. Um, I, I, I finished cricket, and then I had a really successful property development company, yeah. which unfortunately we got caught up in the GFC. And then I literally found myself bankrupt at the age of forty, and I was like, "Okay, I've made some bad choices here. Um, how am I going to get back? I've got um, no money. I'm a forty-year-old." I've alienated myself from cricket. I live in Australia. Everyone hates Tommy cricketers out in Australia. So what am I going to do? And and one thing I can do is fight. So um, I turned professional in fighting just in the short term to just try and bide some time to work out what I wanted to do. Then when I st- started fighting, I actually really enjoyed it. And I was like, why am I enjoying this so much? It was the competitive side of things. Um and I realised I'd been unhappy, even though my company had been so successful and I had like a lot of money. Um, I wasn't happy during that period because I wasn't involved in competitive sports. So my father said, "You know, you've got to go with coaching." I said, "I don't know." There was a guy called Gordon Lord, who was the head of coaching for cricket, and he had basically ever since the day I retired, he said, "Come back and coach." And I said, "One day, Gordon, I'll come back and do it, but not right now. I've got stuff to deal with, and I'll come back." So when my dad said that, I said, yeah, I've got to do that. So I rang Gordon up and I said, mate, I'm coming back. I'm ready to come and coach. And he said, wow, the timing's unbelievable. I, res- I resigned last month. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he said, but how do you get on with Andrew Strauss? And I said, well, I don't really know. Um, I used to sledge him a lot when we played against him. I think we've got respect for each other, but I gave him a pretty hard time when we played against him. So he said, well, ring him up and what do you got to lose? So I rang him up and I said, look, hey, um, you know, I want to get back into coaching. Um, and he, um, I said, I understand I've been out of the game for, you know, a long time now, like 15 years. Um, well, I think it was 12 years, something at the time. Um, how do I get back involved? You know, I, don't, I know I've got to start at the bottom. I'll start with the club side and work my way up. And he was like, no, nah, we want you straight in. And he gave me my first coaching job was with the England T20 side. So um, he, was, he's a, he was a great man because he said, look, we wouldn't want everybody like you. We like people who've stayed in the game and they're up to the count. He said, but when people go out and they acquire other skills, 
we like to be able to bring them in and, and add them to the group, which I thought was a really good observation. So um, that was my, my first gig was being involved with coaching England T20 side. So, um, and then I think I went from England T20 to the England Lions, the England A side. I did some work there and I was terrible. Um, I thought coaching was like a Hollywood movie. I was going to go in and give some Churchillian type speech and this side that was bottom of the table was going to go to the top of the table. And um, that was my initial thoughts on it. And now I've been doing it for five years. I'm like slowly realising that it's not like that at all and it's a slow burn. And uh, I'm fortunate I'm with Queensland cricket, who are obviously great, one of the best first-class sides in the world. So I coach their batsmen. Um, and um, I've just been lucky to stay involved, um, really. So... Yeah, so well, you took um, a roll out in Afghanistan, didn't you? Which is pretty incredible to to talk about. I wanted to talk about cricket specifically in that country. What I, what are the fans like? What's the what's the cricket mean to them? It's like the f- fans is the right word. The fanatical. Um, I, I say it this way. Um, obviously, there's a lot going on in that country politically, and I'm not in a position to to comment on that, but from there, they're like Indians or Pakistanis. That's their sport. I mean, if you go out there, you're not wanting to play too much rugby on those grounds. They're hard and like you don't want to be like... So cricket's probably one of the best sports you can do. You wouldn't want to be slide tackling on on those grounds, that's for sure. So um, they... Um, they I, I, I'm a, when I was out there, I was like, I make a big statement. These guys are going to be one of the best sides in the world within 15 years. So, um, because what I like about them, they've got a big population. Mm. Um, it's not as big as India, but they are big, strong, athletic race of people. Um, I think they, I think their population is similar to Pakistan's, um, but you know they're, they're incredibly strong people because they've got the Russian, East European influence, mm. a little bit of Chinese influence, the borders, and then Pakistan, India. Um, so you've got the physicality of those European um, countries. And you see, if you if you tell them, I can tell you what a Chinese person looks like. I can tell you what an English person looks like. If I try, if you try and tell me what's an Afghan person like, they look. Some of them look Chinese. Some of them look Russian. Some of them look Indian. So they're they're really diverse. Um, but they're um, that's a amazing part of the world, and uh, I think. They go in places. I think they'll do well in the coming years. Did you have any apprehensions before taking such a role? I did, but I also sort of alluded to the fact my financial situation wasn't great. So um, they were offering me a bit of money to come out there. Um, obviously, I was said, "Look, I want to know my um, my security. What's my security going to be like?" Mm. And then I asked some people, and they were like, "I asked people with." knowledge of the area and um i don't know why i asked them because they said absolutely do not go it is not safe i still went um <laughs> so why ask the question in the first place <laughs> um and then sure enough they tried to kill us so um yeah i, I was but i i felt like at that time i guess i took a dive in some ways because i needed the money um so you do what you got to do so i got to feed my family and um, 
and I went there against the wishes of my family, but that's what I felt like I needed to do. And I'm glad I did because there's some good life lessons I learned out there. Um, obviously, they tried to blow us up and they tried to kill us. And then nine of our security and some civilians were, were killed in that um, terrorist attack. And then it was like some amazing days preceding that. I was with Dean, the late Dean Jones and um, Alistair Campbell from Zimbabwe and um, Abdul Razak and Herschel Gibbs. So we were all out there, um, Gus Logie. So we had some decisions to make and um, whether we stayed or whether we went and and then it was sad because the Afghan people, that was the biggest tournament they'd had there and a lot of eyes on the, the world on there. And you could just see they were gutted. They're thinking no one's ever going to come here ever again. Um, if we'd left, I felt like that probably would have been the last time they ever get anyone there. Um, so we did, we, um, we decided to stay. So um, they gave, they did give us a, a, a big uh, increase in security. So, um, but that was that was an interesting decision and the process we went through to try and get to whether we stayed or whether we went. Completely. So, what does what does the future hold in terms of coaching? You are you gonna, you're sticking in Queensland, and that's the foreseeable. Yeah, I am at the moment because I've got I've got my kids who are um, I've got a, a 19 year old daughter, a 14 year old son, and a nine year old boy as well. So I'll just like get that job done and bringing them up um, as best I can. And then obviously there'll come a time when, when they leave home that I'll, I'll probably, I think once my nine year old gets through the teenage years, then I'll, um, you know, I think I'll feel, I'll be free to like to chase my coaching dreams a little bit more. Completely. So I ask this question to everybody that comes on the podcast and I'm very curious to hear what you have to say. What does the word headstrong mean to you? Headstrong. Um, it's, it's interesting because headstrong for me is um, it's a little bit of a negative connotation for me. Mm. It's, um, I feel like headstrong is, um, is you just, I feel like it's uh, your, your focused on what you want to do and you may be emotion uh, maybe emotional about it and you're not this is just this is i'm not saying this is this is the image it conjures up for me i'm not a marketing guru but <laughs> <laughs> um headstrong yeah i think that probably just doing your own thing maybe being a little bit stubborn and probably me i'd probably consider myself headstrong so um a little bit focused, but also a little bit selfish and a little bit um, doing your own thing. Nice. Adam, I've really That's, enjoyed this. Mm. All right. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for ha coming on to have a chat with me. I really appreciate it. Um, and Well, look, I wish you all the best and, and continue Thank your you. great work. And, well, I'm sure we'll be in touch. And you, I hope we, I wish you the best for you Thank as well. Thank you. We are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation with Headstrong and Innings With. Sir Andrew Strauss lost his wife to non-smoking lung cancer in 2018. Just before her death, Ruth and Andrew discussed the idea of setting up a foundation to help other families who would be facing a similar ordeal. 
The Ruth Strauss Foundation wants to ensure that all families with dependent children facing the death of a parent are offered emotional support and guidance to prepare for the future, allowing them to make the most of their time together. In tandem, they are driving the need for more research and collaboration in the fight against non-smoking lung cancers, which are on the rise and to which Ruth ultimately lost her life. You can support their cause by making a donation today. To donate, text RSF10 to 70191 to donate £10. Or you can donate online at virginmoneygiving.com forward slash fund forward slash headstrong forward slash RSF. Thank you for all your support of Headstrong and the Ruth Strauss Foundation. And that concludes this episode of Headstrong. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Adam Hollyoke for getting involved with Headstrong and a massive thank you to Ian at Wisden for organising this podcast. If you enjoyed this show, feel free to leave a review, a rating and indeed send it on to anyone else who you think might enjoy the podcast. Every share, rating and review helps significantly. To donate to the Ruth Strauss Foundation, text RSF10 to 70191. All that's left for me to say is there will be another episode of Headstrong next week with another wonderful cricketer. Until then, stay headstrong. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.